0: Hello and welcome to Breaking the Mold, a podcast from the National Precast Concrete Association. Tune in every month as we dig into a different aspect of the precast concrete industry. I'm Joe Frollo, NPCA Director of Communications and Public Affairs. We hope you enjoy this podcast and get a little something out of it. Make sure to subscribe and rate us so we can continue to grow and serve our membership. Today we're going to be talking about strategies for how and when to open new markets. We'll start off by talking with Garrett Hoffman of Atlantic Precast Concrete. Later in the show, we'll hear from NPCA's Hugh Martin, along with Mark Snyder of Pavement Engineering and Research Consultants. They're going to focus specifically on opportunities with precast concrete paving slabs. Let's get started. Hey, Garrett, thanks a lot for joining us today. Joe, thank you so much for having me on here, man. I appreciate that. So here at NPCA, we get calls, you know, weekly, if not a couple times a week from people who are looking to start up a precast concrete facility and and look into what sort of products, look into what sort of production process that uh, they should start out with. Well, we're talking about analyzing your market. We're talking about for, for those who are just starting out. You know, what, what are the more simple products that, that precast facilities produce and that you found is a good starting place to sort of start start building your company portfolio?
1: So when you're just starting out or you're looking for sort of, you know, some basics here, obviously you want to know your markets. You want to know what is what's being made in your area, in your region, you know, whether it's very um, housing centric whether it's more of commercial you want to get a temperament for that as you would with any market you know some good kind of starter products as it were are flat work generator pads any sort of um, base slabs are always a great uh, jumping off point. I've been at companies before where you go through periods uh, where people are are ordering generators for uh, you know storm situations and uh, or backup standby generators. Uh, those are always a hot seller for me. Commercial light pole bases or pole bases in general, I have always found to be uh, to be a great jumping off uh, product line uh, for precasters. Um, the buy in for it is not the most expensive that i've ever seen you know it's fairly low cost to get started on that product line the the reward if you're doing it successfully it, it pays out pretty quickly there but i mean really it's all about it's all about where you're lo- where you're located you know um you got to know what's around you in terms of precast you got to have you got to feel that temperament for it and once you get that temperament you can feel it out or, or, or am i in a city area where we're putting a lot of manholes and stormwater treatment structures in. Are we in the suburbs? And there's a, a large uh, potential cemetery or, or burial field going next to me. Maybe I want to look in the burial vaults. So it's very much location-driven before anything else. I'd say. Yeah,
0: that's a good thing that and, and most people who are going to start a, a precast concrete manufacturing facility, they're going to have a little bit of experience in the in the business and and know what they want to do from the start, but it, it's always a growing experience and and it's sort of a chicken and egg you know you may have what you want to construct but it's not what your market wants wants from you do you look at uh like what the government wants what private industry wants where's where's like the easiest pickings when you're first starting out
1: uh, i'd say easiest pickings is not going to be government um and it's only for the reason is uh historically speaking you know when you run into government jobs state jobs there's a lot more requirements for it it depends on how much you're willing to put into it in that startup period you know you run into people and they may just not have the resources to devote to uh all the stringent requirements the state or the federal levels require and that's okay certainly nothing wrong with that it may be something where you have to start out with sort of um doing you know standard commercial structures or industrial structures and then build up to that point of you know getting your house in order, getting your product lines in order, making you know, a good product, and then finally coming to the table and saying, you know what, I think I want to try, try and bend a DOT project this time around. I think we're gonna you know rise to that occasion and uh, and be successful there.
0: That's a great point about building up and uh, getting to that point because you're right. The the codes step up maybe a little bit depending on what county or what state you're building in or building for. And uh, there, there's a lot that goes into that that doesn't necessarily go into uh, selling on the private sector. Let's keep going along this journey for, uh, for our newest members, for our, uh, for our newest facilities. You know, business has been good. Uh, got a couple years under your belt. You know, you're looking to maybe start expanding your product offerings. And uh, what are some indicators that you typically look for in the market that, that there's going to be, you know, need and opportunity? Because if you're going to want to be buying new equipment, you're going to be want to be hiring more people. And, and to make that kind of investment, you know, you got to hit it at the right
1: time or at least hit it when the opportunity knocks. Research is always going to be the key here. Uh, knowing your markets again, uh, knowing your clientele, your customers, figuring out what they're looking for next. You don't want to put your time and resources and develop your training and formwork uh, to a product line that's going to flop or be unsuccessful. You want to do your homework on this. stuff. And that can be a tricky one in this industry. I've seen instances where you have a customer and you pitch something to them and they say, wow, you know, that's the best thing since sliced bread. That's great. And you go, oh, okay, great. We're going to start making these things. And then they buy one unit, two units, and it kind of flops and falls off. So, you know, you want to do your research. Is there a need for it? Is is it going to be profitable? And then obviously, uh, you know, you want to look at economic markers, which I know is easier said than done. You want to know how the markets are doing. Um, You want to know if this is the time to pull the trigger. And again, I I know it's easy for you and I to sit here and and, and say how easy it is, but you just you want to be as thorough as possible here. You want to make sure you dotted every I crossed every T here so that when that product launch is successful, um, that the word is getting out. And and that again, you're going to be profitable in in whatever time you determine that's going to be, you know, however many months uh, or weeks or years or anything like that. You want to have your marketing in place, you know, all these things. Uh, you're advertising for it. I've seen product lines be very successful. I've seen product lines fall apart. So it depends on your 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 thoroughness to your research is, is paramount to this.
0: Yeah, and that that's a great point. One of the hardest things for uh, for new business owners to do is to say no sometimes and. You know, one job is not going to open up an entire product line for you by any stretch. You've got, you've got to make sure there's a follow-up opportunities. There's not a competitor out there who can maybe do it cheaper and faster than you can. So you invest all this money, time, equipment, you know, training into this new product line. And then all of a sudden, six months down the road, no one's buying from you. So, no, those are outstanding points.
1: Yeah, I uh, I ran into at uh, one of my previous places that I worked at. We ran into an instance where we were making some uh, some radiation shielding blocks for, I guess, X ray and um, MRI facilities. And it was a great little venture. We were using some special aggregate, some high density aggregate, to make sure that it was containing the radiation. We got hooked up with this company, and it was great. It was it was a great money maker. Uh, we worked with them for about I think four jobs over about a year or so with building these blocks. And we were like, oh, this is great. We're going to invest in the form work and we're going to, you know, uh, put the resources into it. And all of a sudden they fell off the face of the earth. We never heard from them again. And it was the weirdest thing. And I'm very fortunate that we didn't go ahead and, and finalize pulling the trigger on the purchase of the forms as, as great as it would be. Unfortunately, that does happen too. Is is you know, the customer says, oh, I want one unit. They buy one unit and and then that's it. So Switching to the macro a little bit,
0: talking about the industry in general, you know, there's a lot of opportunity with the uh, the bipartisan infrastructure bill. There's a lot of investment on the federal, state, and, and local level going on. You know, people are coming out of COVID. They've had a few years now where I think jobs are uh, becoming a little more opportune if if, if you're hitting the market uh, correctly and, and, you know, working your tail off out there. But where do you see Precast moving as far as new product lines, new applications? Where... Where do you see uh, our membership as a whole, maybe looking five, 10 years down the line, and and, and what opportunities could come
1: their way? I think, for back of, lack of a better verbiage, the sky is the limit here. And it really just depends on, I think, how open precasters are to building and developing new product lines. That's really what it comes down to. You will have instances where personnel will have a bid come through for something that is totally off of the radar of what they typically build. And some of these precasters may look at it and say, "Nope, we're not even I'm not even going to open that file. I'm not even going to entertain that thought. We make product A, B and C here, and that's it." They're closed-minded. I I can't disagree with them. I understand it. You know you know what you make and you do it well. I get that. But I think future generations of precasters need to be open to the idea of stepping out of their proverbial comfort level as it were. You're seeing videos online, TikTok videos of entire houses now being created with 3D concrete and grouting applications and things like that. You're seeing these things pop up these new ways of using uh concrete. You see the porous concrete uh in floodwater areas which has been around for some time, but you're seeing these new things and you're seeing concrete applications sort of start to inch their way into the mainstream a little bit with these fringe projects. And I think that's what we're going to see here going forward as well. I think precasters and project managers and estimators need to be open to the idea of rolling with those punches, of exploring that idea, of opening that link to just see, well, just take a look at it. Maybe it's it's quite easy for you when you look at it and you, you break everything down and you take all the components out of it. And, oh, it's just a box. Uh, That's all it is. We can make that here. And then all of a sudden, now you've got a new product line. Now you're producing a a totally new thing for a desire or a need of something in that area. And I think just having the attitude of being open-minded to these things will automatically set us on track for whatever is to come in the future here. You know, the product lines. it's really going to be up to the imagination of what we're going to make next precast is is a great building material. We know that that's why we do this stuff. And it's really, it's whatever you can imagine and, and manufacture next down the pipeline that is going to set that pace.
0: Yeah. I like what you said about being open-minded and, and being thoughtful to the future, because for some of the reasons we talked about earlier, you know, your company may not be ready to make that jump. Uh, You may just have to watch for a couple of years or even, you know, half a decade to a decade to see, where markets go what's there's a lot of risk reward when you get in on the ground floor of a new idea a new product line something like that in that it could take off and you could be the person in your region to supply that stuff or it could fall off the face of the earth and nobody wants it anymore and all of a sudden you're stuck with investment i think one product line that i'm seeing a lot of here especially in the midwest where we are is ev charging you know bases so there's a wide spectrum of what people personally believe when it comes to, you know, electric vehicles and, you know, new technologies and, you know, climate change and things like that, but regardless of where your your politics or your belief fall, that product line compared to especially 5 10 years ago is really really taking off, so it's something you might want to consider.
1: Yes, 100% and and to that again, you know, I've been in an instance where about eight years ago, we had a customer, they presented the idea of making the EV charging stations, And I thought it was the best thing ever. I was on board the train. I'm like, all right, this is great. I mocked them all up. And you know how many we built? We built zero. We built none of them because at the time it just wasn't catching fire like it was now, you know? And again, didn't pull, we decided not to pull the trigger on that. We didn't invest in the forward. We stuck to our light pole bases, and, and that was it. And again, I'm very thankful that we did that because, I, I mean, it took off eventually, but at the time, I think we would have been in some dire straits there because it did take a couple more years for things to start actually taking off in that regard.
0: Yeah, and that goes into that timing that we talked about too. It's, it's a tricky thing, and, and when it's your money and your company, you may be a little bit more conservative than uh, the market wants you to be at certain times, and and you've got to make that decision. You've got to be willing to live with it either way. So you, we've talked a little bit about the precast concrete industry and and the possibilities, the infinite ways and routes that this industry can go. But where do you see the industry stepping up and handling the uh, the vast infrastructure demands that the the country and the world really are looking for at this point?
1: Well, I'm hoping that the industry and the laborers and the workers that make up this pre-cast industry continue to rise to the occasions that they have been doing throughout the decades here. I mean, precast is here to stay. And so it's a, it's obviously an issue that I feel is, is more of a hot button topic right now is the lack of a skilled labor force out there right now. And obviously that is dictating the heartbeat of a lot of the pre-cast companies. What it's really going to come down to is what the scope of that looks like uh, in the next year, five years, 10 years. We can't do anything, obviously, or we are severely limited by the amount of labor output that we're getting. here. And I think we need to see some hard changes in policy and and attitudes and thinking in shifting to getting people back into trades and, and getting back into that skilled labor. I hope the precast continues to take off. It continues to be a keystone of building materials and infrastructure in this country, in the world. But it's only going to be as successful as the labor that is backing it. I I won't speak for every other precaster out there, but I know many are in agreement right now that obviously there is a considerable shortage of skilled laborers out there. And I know for Atlantic here, that's absolutely dictating the amount of of output we can do with our product at the moment. It's going to be an interesting couple of years here, I think, and it has been an interesting couple of years here for the precast. I think the world is watching us to see kind of what happens next here, as it were.
0: And that's one of the things we're working at here at NPCA is uh, developing the the workforce of the future, the the, the young people who are coming out of high school, coming out of college maybe, new workers, uh, immigrants to your area, or maybe not immigrants, but tra- uh, people who just who move to your area who are looking for places to work. Uh, when I talk to precast owners and precast operators here that are members of MPCA, I ask them, how many high school juniors and seniors in your area know that you exist? Know that when they graduate from high school, maybe they don't want to go to college. Maybe they want to take a year or two off and go to community college or or just you know take some time off and, and take a gap year or something know that you are an option where they could go and work full time and make some money. Some might stay, some might move on, but that's the way it is with all workers. You never know what you're going to get until you invest into them. Some of them may find, you know, I've got a good career right here. I don't need to move on. But if they don't know that your facility exists, and if they don't know that that opportunity is there, you're not going to get them in the door in the first place.
1: And I think MPCA, you know, throughout the years has always been a wealth of information for educational courses and content. I mean, I did the master program and I've done countless webinars and education sessions and, and courses and you guys are on the ball for it. You know, it, the, the organization is great. I think there needs to be, and and not, not from you guys or anything, but just in generalities, there needs to be an attitude shift from you know, the stigma that everybody right out of high school has to jump, you know, right into college or or anything like that. Precast, in my professional opinion, has always been one of the safest careers to be in. It's never going to go away. Uh, I don't want to say that it's recession-proof completely, but I will say it's recession-resistant. It's a very stable industry, or it can be a very stable industry for a long-term career. And I don't think that's emphasized in the world considering how much uh, precast concrete is essential to a job site or a building or or any operation. I think there's not enough awareness put into how essential the operation is as opposed to the need for the skilled, skilled help here, as it were. And I think, you know, as a whole, there needs to be, again, a, a behavioral shift. In, in that thinking of, well, I can start as a laborer or a, a quality control inspector at this precast company, and then in a couple years or so work my way up the ladder, and they're not going anywhere. They're continuing to be successful and, and, um, and be profitable, and that, that company could set me up for other education courses, certifications as well that might help my career in the future. And then
0: getting that kind of workforce at your facility, you know, where they stick around, where they're, where they're knowledgeable and where they're experienced, that's what allows you to grow and to expand and to enlarge in your footprint in the market. So you don't have to turn over workers every three to six to nine months or anything like that. So what's the future look like? You're a young man, especially compared to me looking in the mirror. Um, what What's the younger generation of uh, pre-casters looking at? What where do you want to see this, this, uh, industry in 20, 30 years?
1: I see as much as I kind of sat here and, and preached a little bit, you know, that they that good help is so hard to come by. I, I see a bright future here. I am very optimistic. You know, I am a third generation precaster and my grandfather did it. My father did it. And, um, my father does it. And, uh, I, I am optimistic. I think that the future looks good for us. I think that there is a hope that this industry we have good bones. There's so much potential for these younger generations here, and I don't I don't care what the stigmas are. Even if I do kind of rattle on about it a little bit, I think that there is time to turn those bad habits around. Get guys educated at a younger level. I've seen I've had guys come through here that are younger younger than I am fresh into FreeCast and they develop a passion for it just like I did and it takes time sometimes it, it takes time you don't I always joke that I never just woke up and suddenly was like you know what I think I love FreeCast now it was definitely an acquired taste but I think being here having a great culture to work for waking up and wanting to go to that job every morning because you like being there I think those little things are gonna kind of pick away. They're gonna open up the doors for the younger generation here. I'm I'm staying very optimistic in this. Uh, as much as I rag on younger generations and and guys of my own age as well, because I've seen I've seen it in all ages and and, and ranks, but I I'm staying hopeful for the future. I think there's gonna be the I see more training coming through the NPCA. You guys are always releasing uh, new training and onboarding. Um, you just released the onboarding guide this year that we, uh, we, you know, got in on, we've been using that with our guy. And I think our retention rate has actually been a little bit more successful as a result of that, of, of showing these courses to, uh, to our new hires and giving them that hands-on that special training, going the extra mile as it were to show these guys that we care about them. And from what I've seen here, uh, lately more than, than not is that. The more you put into these guys, the more resources you devote to them for training, and and just showing them that they can lean on you for anything, the more successful they are throughout the workday. The more you get out of out of those workers.
0: Well, Gareth, this has been a great conversation. Um, I think it's one that's ongoing at many of the events that I go to, and uh, hopefully, this is uh, going to help some of our newer members and some of our established members as they as they look to grow and, and bring more precast to the world in the coming decades. Sounds good, Joe. Thank you. Take care. Let's take a quick break to hear about some NPCA programs that can help your facility operate at peak efficiency. When we come back, we'll have NPCA's Hugh Martin alongside Mark Snyder of Pavement Engineering and Research Consultants to talk about precast concrete paving slabs.
2: Precast concrete manufacturers and suppliers are invited to open their doors and host a local Precast Days event in October. Precast Days is an annual initiative of the National Precast Concrete Association designed to raise awareness of precast manufacturing across the United States. Through these events, facilities educate local communities about career opportunities, precast products, and modern manufacturing techniques. Learn more and register your facility today at precast.org slash precastdays. NPCA once again is offering a series of free webinars designed specifically for engineers, departments of transportation personnel, and others who specify construction projects. Hear from the industry's best and brightest minds on Precast concrete applications and benefits. Earn professional development hours while learning how Precast products can help you meet project goals quickly and efficiently. Sign up today at precast.org specifiers. hello, Mark. Welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks, Hugh. Thanks for inviting me to join in today. Well, for today's discussion
4: on joining precast concrete pavement, I'd like for you to first give us a brief introduction
3: of precast concrete paving slabs. Um, What are they and how are they used? That's a good place to start. Precast pavement slabs are prefabricated, engineered paving slabs. They've been designed to emulate cast-in-place concrete. In terms of the panel dimensions and the surface geometry, the fact that they've got load transfer systems, etc., but they are fabricated in advance rather than being cast into the field. So that offers some advantages in terms of uh, opportunities for quality control and so forth, as well as speed of construction. Where would someone want to use quick-ass paving slabs? What types of applications are there for them? Well, the possibilities are really pretty endless with the jointed precast types. I mean, we've seen them used just about everywhere. We've seen them used on highways and and streets and local roads, exit ramps, on-ramps onto highways, uh, area paving like parking lots and uh, toll plazas. In fact, one of the the biggest jobs of the modern precast era was a a large toll plaza. We can talk about that later if you'd like. Airfields, I think I mentioned, uh, bus ramps, overlays and inlays. We've even seen some overlays and inlays being done. And they can be done for uh, repairs or as lane replacements or as new construction. So I mean it's really fairly limitless because of the uh, the jointed nature it makes it a very flexible application.
4: Okay. well before we get into some of the benefits
3: of them, so what prompted producers to start making them? I think the better question really is what pr- what prompted uh, agencies to start demanding them because obviously the producers are responding to the demand, right? And if you go back and look historically, I mean, precast pavements have been uh, used in one form or another. Gosh, going back into World War II, if you go over to Russia and Europe, I mean, the Russians did a lot of the earliest precast pavement work, believe it or not. The modern era though now uh, is is not so much military applications as we saw both in the United States and in Europe, but it's it's been driven by uh, agencies wanting to have the need to make long lasting, durable repairs that they can do in a relatively short work window. And that's driven by traffic volumes. So I think that we're gonna continue to see this market with the potential for growth because traffic's not going down anytime soon. Mark, how have they evolved over the years? Oh gosh, precast pavements have have evolved in so many ways over the years. I mean, again, if we go back to the very beginning, uh, back World War II time, it was was pretty much very uh, basic rectangular panels, flat panels that were placed and cast. Rather crudely, I might say, and and moved into position uh, again, the military does things kind of by brute force, right? And so it's uh, they're they're trying to very rapidly build uh, pavements for um, transport of military vehicles and for rapid repairs of airfield pavements after bombings and things. And they weren't really concerned with ride quality and so forth at that time. Uh, we've evolved now to the standpoint where um, gosh, they're no longer flat rectangular panels. We've got very sophisticated systems that, can be designed and fabricated in three dimensions so that when they are put in place, the panels fit exactly. Uh, very, very good fit and finish so that there's very little need for uh, post-installation grinding to produce smoothness. I mean, we, we still do that in many cases, but um, the load transfer systems are much more sophisticated. Uh, there have been a number of different load transfer systems developed over the years. Uh, the reinforcing of the panels, the uh, the way that the panels are supported, the the um, the in- injection of grout underneath the slab through ports in the surface of the pavement, that's a relatively new concept. All, all sorts of things re- regarding the, the details of the design and the construction have changed tremendously over the last 20 years, I'd say, since about 2000.
4: Are you seeing more and more irregular shakes now, uh, more than just rectangular?
3: Yeah, I don't think there's very many pure rectangular panels that are built except for uh, repairs anymore. If you're doing lane replacements, you're going to have, you go around curves, you've got you've got trapezoidal shapes as you're going around curves, you've got um, the, the widths of the, the panels. I mean, when you pave the original pavement, if the pavement was placed originally and they, they saw cut down the middle, you, nominally a 12-foot wide lane, but sometimes it's going to be 11-foot 10 in some places and 12 feet 2 in others. So, you, yeah, you get a lot of uh, unusual shapes these days. And again, if you're replacing an existing panel uh, existing lane. you want to match in with the existing geometry and that existing pavement may have developed some local settlements. So in addition to the designed in uh, super elevations and 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 other sources of non-planar panels, you've got just the settlement of the pavement over time which makes the pavements um, non-planar. So I, I think on some jobs I've seen as much as 50 to sixty percent of the panels are are in three dimensions and and uh, and not purely rectangular. How are these panels connected to the existing pavement? Well, the, the connections are going to emulate what you would do with a cast-in-place pavement again, which means typically with a jointed pavement, you're going to have a dowel bar load transfer system of some sort. And the design of that system is no different than the design of a system for a conventional concrete pavement. It's going to be conventional dowel bars, uh, in most cases conventional dowel bars, with the same sorts of spacing that you would have in regular pavements. Uh, might be able to use... Different lengths of dowel bars because in conventional pavements, uh, we embed those bars in a solid slab of concrete. And then the contractor comes back after the fact and cuts the joint and tries to locate where those dowel bars were, but they never know exactly where it is. And the uh, and the, the saw operator may deviate a little bit. So our dowel bars typically are 18 inches long to make sure that we've got at least six inches of embedment on both sides of the joint, which most folks would accept is enough to provide good load transfer. But with a precast pavement, we know exactly where the joint is because it's prefabricated. So you don't need that extra length of dial bar and you can save money on your dial bars by using shorter bars. Uh, We also have some, um, there there have been some innovative uh, load transfer systems developed, really innovative precast systems that were developed to be removable pavement systems. And uh, there have been some hollow dial bar systems that were developed for those as well. And that kind of a A detail maybe you don't want to drill into here, but the bottom line is that load transfer systems and and tie bar systems are designed with the same considerations as you would use for cast-in-place pavement. Uh, There's really no difference. Uh, You may have to do some different things because of the way that you're staging the construction, where you put the the tie bars relative to the the joints and so forth. Again, that's a, a detail that. I don't want to drill down into a lot here. We, we, we could spend a lot of time here talking about all the, we start talking about these things and my mind goes to all these different projects that we've worked on and all the things that you see. And I want to bring that in here, but this is not the appropriate time for that. But I will say, and you probably we're going to get to this a little later on, uh, NPCA has a, a very good guidebook on precast pavements. And a lot of the stories that I'd like to tell here are in that guidebook and a lot of the details. And that's, that's over a hundred pages of, um, very, very good experience-based information on the specifics of load transfer design and tie design, and where you use the bars and where you don't, and where you match your joints and where you don't. Don't. But the general rule of thumb is we're emulating cast-in-place, and those general rules apply to precast as well. So, what specifications govern precast concrete paving slabs? pavement slabs. Well, the the specifications will be those that the agency selects. I mean, just, there are a handful of. Uh, Agencies that have specifications in place for using precast pavements. Uh, Caltrans does. Uh, New York does. New Jersey does. Pennsylvania does. There's a lot of states that have, a lot of the states that have used precast, you know, fairly extensively. And, and the ones I've listed are probably the most, among the most uh, common users of precast systems. For those that don't have uh, specifications in place, usually what they're going to do is they're going to look at what other people do have um, and there are those agencies that I mentioned, as well as uh, some guide specifications that were developed by the uh, ASHTO TIG Technology Implementation Group, and those those are available online. I believe we also have some specifications in the NPCA guide document as well. But it really all depends on the agency and kind of how they they tweak things. And there are uh, you're good to bring this up because there are certainly different types of specifications. There are specifications that have specific approved systems that they require to be used, there are some that have allowable systems, there are some that simply define the, uh, the properties that any given precast pavement system needs to have. And I think it's, this is a good place to, to emphasize the fact that precast pavements need to be done as a system, just like we do with the design of conventional pavements. You can't make a change in panel size without recognizing how that affects the thickness of the pavement or the need for reinforcing the pavement. Um, All these things are interrelated, so if any agency does have an, an open type of a specification that allows the contractor to develop their own system or to pull in different components that they think might work for this particular job, usually then the agency is going to have a requirement that the contractor would demonstrate that system prior to actually beginning construction. They'll have to build a test strip of some sort. And that test strip, again, is going to not only demonstrate the system, you know, and, and that the agency may test load transfer efficiency across the joints and the width of the joints and these kinds of things that they think will impact the performance, but they'll also be looking at how the contractor installs it. So they're, they're, they're basically a dry run for both the system and for the install, installers as well. You get away from a little bit of that if the agency just has already pre-approved systems that uh, that they specify. But there are there's a lot on specifications. And again, I'm going to go back to that NPCA guide. There's a whole chapter in the guide on specifications and the pros and cons of different kinds of specifications. So I would encourage the listener to take a take a look there for more details.
4: What benefits do precast paving slabs provide over other types of pavements? I know we've kind of gone into some of this, with the speed of installation and things like that, and uh, also increased
3: durability. What are some other benefits? Well, I think those are the primary two. I mean, that's why Precast cast gets specified because the agency has a need to do something quickly, but they don't want something that's quick, and then they have to come back in and do it again next year or two years from now or even five years from now. So it, it is about the speed of installation in a short work window. It's about durability. The potential for durability, I, I'd say there are other benefits as well. Um, load carrying capacity. Again, if you're looking at a precast concrete slab versus uh, someone dumping a bunch of asphalt down there very quickly. Um, you know the asphalt might get you out of the out of the problem for the short term, but it's not going to have the load carrying capacity uh, for the same thickness that the concrete will. Another benefit is going to be the extending of the construction season because if you have cast in place concrete, you may be limited to the types of weather you're able to construct in, whether it's particularly cool weather that might slow the curing rate of of cast in place concrete or even uh, slightly rainy weather, where you wouldn't want to be putting in fresh concrete. I mean, you don't want to be putting in precast in a hurricane condition, but, but certainly you've got a much more um, broad range of weather conditions that you can successfully install precast in because of the fact that the slab is already at full strength. Uh, you don't need to cure it. So those are some of the benefits for the agency, the uh, the contractor. Uh, has benefits in terms of the fact that you're not having to test product in the field, you're not running air tests and slump tests and breaking beams and stuff. This has already been done ahead of time. The products are uh, fabricated, ready to go, and ready to drive on as soon as you uh, have them in place. So, lots and lots of different types of benefits besides just speed of installation and durability of of the systems.
4: Yeah, and I think that's something that probably perplexes the user, the driver, Pretty often is you see a brand uh, a freshly repaired lane and it's still all blocked off and no one can drive on it and you're thinking well that concrete is bloody hard by now surely we can drive on it but you really have to get the full strength of that concrete built up to get that durability before you can actually drive on it or you're going to crack it. Also, too the durability aspect uh, that kind of dawned on me while we were while we were talking is the concrete, you you have to remedy the problem that caused the concrete paving to fail in the first place. And if you're replacing that failed concrete with something much more durable, then all the better, you're going to have a much more long-lasting repair than just going back in there and doing the same thing over again and then having the same problem show up a few years later. Yeah, that's exactly right, Hugh. What kind of things need to be considered
3: when planning to use precast pavement slabs? Well, there's a lot of stuff. I mean, gosh, where do we start here? Um, From a construction standpoint, obviously, you're looking at the duration of the work windows, the timing of the work windows. The available space is important in terms of the staging. I mean, a lot of times we like to have the lane that we're working in and an additional lane next to it because that's going to help to um, speed up the operation. If you've got another lane there to work, kind of a traffic buffer, plus you can bring your your new panel's in and you can set your cranes up on the adjacent lane. That makes it faster. doesn't mean you can't do it in a single lane. I've seen jobs done on a single lane where they they place one panel then the, the crane uh, moves right up onto the panel they just placed and they work on placing the next panel, but uh, it does slow things down a little bit that way. Uh, traffic control, obviously, is a concern. Uh, transport and handling can be a concern or a consideration, I should say, not a concern, but a consideration most states have a limit on how large a panel you can transport over the road, uh, how how large a load you can put on the load anyway, twelve feet wide, right? Um, and maybe less in some places. And that's not only the size of the slab, but also any steel that's sticking out from it as well. So that's going to put a limit on the the size of the panels you use. And if you're putting in panels that are, you know a full lane width wide, uh, 12 feet wide, you can't really have any steel sticking out of them. So maybe that's going to affect the types of dowel bars and tie bars you have. You might be using a two-part tie bar where you're embedding basically a half of a tie bar with a threaded receptor on it so that when you get it out to the field, then you, you screw the other half of the tie bar in place. Um, that allows you to, to transport a full-size panel out there. So those sorts of things. The size of the equipment that you're using out there. What what equipment does the contractor have available for replacing the panels, that may affect the design if they don't have the equipment to handle large slabs, or if the job site is such that it's not going to allow the use of tall cranes, or you're working under overpasses and things like that, that's going to affect the size of the panels that are being used. It's, that's especially true at, at airfields, where, I mean, with airfields, we tend to have much larger panels anyway. I mean, you might have panels that are up to, uh, if, they, if they made them full size, 25 by 25 and and fairly thick, that's a really heavy slab. And to lift that really heavy slab, you need to have a really large crane. Uh, you also have to probably set up your fabrication on site because you'd never be able to haul something like that over the road. So all the, all these sorts of things um, are going to intertwine uh, as as you look at um, space considerations and equipment considerations. And and like I said, if you had a really tall crane on an airfield, you know they don't like having tall things at airfields. Uh, planes tend to, you know, have a tendency to run into tall things at airfields. So. Uh, all these sorts of things play into the selection of the panel size and and the equipment that's being used on the job site. So lots and lots of different factors to consider. And again I'm going to I'm going to refer back I'm going to plug I'm going to shamelessly plug the NPCA guide again because there's much more information in there for specific, you know, highway applications, airfield applications and so forth.
4: We talked a little earlier about different shapes of panels and things. Is there any other or any special expertise or equipment we're t- Required to fabricate precast slab panels?
3: Well, you know, in theory, at, at the basic level, no. I mean, uh, if the Russian army could do it back in the in World War II, then anybody could do it, right? I'm not saying anything about. It. I just say World War II. The Russians it's pretty simple stuff, right? Basic flat rectangular panels take no special expertise, right? You got to have some kind of a, a lifting loop system in it for picking them up and moving them around, but there's no nothing really special about that. So, at the simplest level, the answer is no. But if you get into some of the more sophisticated systems, if you want to really take full advantage of all the potential that you can have with precast systems, and you're going to use non-rectangular panel sizes and, and, um, and non-planar panels where they are not flat panels anymore. Now you're going to need to have special formwork that can be um, used to create panels of different sizes. It's not going to be a fixed size form. There's what's called a windmill form. And in your mind, you can maybe picture what that looks like with all the sides are actually longer than they need to be. And they kind of tee into one another and, and so that when it's all done, it looks like a windmill. But as you adjust the size on those, you get different lengths of uh, wings off that windmill, if that kind of makes sense to you. Uh, and those are a, a special item. If you're making matched panels, uh, sometimes there are casting beds that are made that are very, very long. And they'll, they'll, they'll place the panels one after another in the same set of forms and then they number those as they come out and they can put a re, kind of refabricate it back into the same place in the field again. Or not refabricate it, but replace it in the field in the same order they were cast. So there, there is the possibility of using special formwork to get higher productions and better fits in the field. And as you use those special pieces of equipment and special formwork, then you're going to want to have people that are um, knowledgeable in using them as well. So you're going to need to have trained personnel. And I think you always want to have your best people on these jobs anyway, uh, even if for nothing else than making sure that all the embedded features, the lifting loops, are placed at the right locations inside the panels before the concrete is placed. Very important. you put the lifting uh, the lifting uh, loops and the jacks at the wrong location, when you pick it up, the stresses in the panel may be different from what was designed. As the, as the panels being carried through the air, and you don't want to have those panels breaking, or, or cracking because they are not handled properly, or because the lifting loops, or the grout ports, or the dowel slots, were not in the right location. It is potentially a very high precision operation to have good, high quality, modern precast panels in three dimensions. So, so the answer is yes and no. Everything from the simplest, no expertise, to the modern system, yeah, you got to have good people and good equipment.
4: Yeah, Mark, I think one misconception might be that you have to be, the level of precision for these has to be just so great that it would be hard to actually fit these into place. But that's not the case, is it? Um, Can you go through a few case studies, um, a couple of good case studies of how
3: precast concrete paving slabs benefited the project? Okay. Well, there's a couple of things you mentioned there. One was about the precision. So let me address that first. Um, Yeah, they do need to be fabricated very, very closely because we have most of the specifications agencies use require that the placement is such that your joints are no more or no less than a certain width. And certainly the last thing you want to do is get out to the field and have a a slab that's supposed to go into a particular hole. They've got the hole cut and you bring the slab out and uh, either it's way too small, so your joint widths are way too wide, and that we can kind of live with. Some sometimes they can they can work around that. They may take it out and put it, put a proper size one back in later.
4: I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I was thinking of a joke. Cut it twice and it's still too short.
3: Yeah, you're right, exactly. But you don't want to have um, don't want to have them come in too small, and you really don't want to have them come in too big, where they've got to cut the hole again. Yeah, you know, and and now you've got downtime. You had a short work window, and now you're falling behind because oh, the slab doesn't fit. We got to put another cut in there. You know, so precision and fabrication, I mean, we're talking about fabricating these within, you know, plus or minus an eighth of an inch in all dimensions a lot of times. So that's very important. So the second part was, I think you were asking about uh, some case studies. Was, was that right? I mean. Yes. Yeah. Just just um, some good case
4: studies to show how precast paving slabs have benefited a project and, and how they
3: added value to uh, a paving project. Well, I, I could come up with lots and lots of um, because I think whenever precast is used, it adds value. I mean, you know, I worked with uh, Peter Smith from Fort Miller Company a lot of times, and he used to always say that if you're going to, uh, if you can build it with cast in place, you probably will and you should. And precast is for those times when you really can't build it with cast in place because you can't get the strength fast enough or the the work windows are too, too short and the traffic is too high and you need to use precast. So the fact that you use it to begin with, there's benefit right there all by itself. But I, would, I guess I would kind of look at uh, the Alpha and the Omega here. The, the first jointed precast pavement of what I would call the modern precast era would be the, uh, the year 2000, uh, the reconstruction of the Tappan Zee Toll Plaza uh, near New York City. And this was kind of the demonstration project that proved that precast pavements had a place in the toolbox for the modern pavement engineer. And this was, uh, gosh, I wish I could, you know, in your mind's eye, picture like 17 lanes of traffic coming into this toll plaza, and they've got like 285,000 vehicles per day. And they only had a short work window at night to replace panels. So they were, they replaced the entire thing over, I think, maybe about a three or four month period, just, you know, eight or 10, initially eight or 10 panels per night. I think they increased that eventually up to maybe 15 or 20 panels per night. But the traveling public never knew, for the most part. The, the folks that were using the pavement at rush hour, in the morning rush hour, the evening rush hour, they never knew they are getting a brand new pavement system in there over a period of three months, just a few panels at a time here and there, never really slowed things down for the traveling public. And that is what kicked off, you know, really for the entire nation here and even outside the U.S. because people outside the U.S. have borrowed this technology now and are, are using it more uh, frequently than what was done in the past. So that probably is the very first one. It's, it's, it's more the same. Um, I would say the, the more recent project, and again, there's lots of projects in between and a few projects since, uh, but I was involved with a project out in Hawaii uh, on the H1 freeway, which runs from Honolulu uh, West, and it goes past Pearl Harbor. And in fact, the area um, that I was involved with was around the Pearl Harbor area. And this was in each direction, anywhere from five to eight lanes in each direction, depending upon where you are on the project. And they had certain areas that needed to be reconstructed because the original pavement was built on an area with vastly uh, different and highly varying subgrade support air, uh, levels. It was built on, on lava flows and, and fill areas. So as they, they knew that, and they'd started out originally years ago as being just you know two lanes in each direction, and they've, they've scabbed on lanes over the years. And it was in uh, dire straits, pretty poor condition, very rough. They'd done a lot of uh, asphalt overlays on it. They weren't lasting very long. They're having to come back and do it every few years. They needed some long-term fixes in certain areas. And they let the project, as a design-build project, uh, and this was this was truly amazing. They let the thing, uh, we had interviews, I think in December of 2017, if I'm getting my years right. 2018, I think, they made the final selection in January of 2018. And the requirement was that there was about six lane miles of precast paving to be placed. They had no equipment on site for it. Highly variable subgrade conditions on the entire project and support conditions. I mean, some places had concrete slabs under it. Some places just had three feet of crushed rock I mean a, a wide variety of, of support conditions and all the work had to be done by August of that year too and nothing's even been designed as of January the first panels were not placed until uh, early April it was when they started producing panels because once they got the job then you had to start fabricating forms and shipping forms out to the local precaster there and uh, the contractor had to go out and do a lot of um, they did a lot of ground-penetrating radar work to, de- to determine where the foundation varied and where they'd need to use different sections. Uh, so they could plan every night that they, if they opened it up that night, they could put the right subgrade back in. You know, some places they're rebuilding subgrade, some places they're just going right on top of an uh, existing uh, cement-treated base with a little bit of an inner layer there. So lots of different stuff everywhere. But bottom line is, and I, I've stretched this out more than I needed to probably, but the entire thing was built in about three months of time in work windows that were only about seven hours long every night. And uh, again, very successful. It won all kinds of state awards. They had a big uh, ribbon-cutting ceremony and they 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 bring out ceremonial lays for all the people that were involved because they were so happy with the thing. Um, It was a great project, but it showed what could be done. Uh, It went from zero to 60. I mean, from awarding the project and having nothing on site, no concrete, no formwork even, in January, starting to produce slabs in April, being essentially done by July and wrapped up in August. It was truly transformational. So I think it's just an example of what can be done. And a lot of three-dimensional panels, and uh, they also used a lot of precast for the uh, bridge approach panels out there as well. And the connection system, I presume, helps with that a lot because you're not
4: just relying on varying subgrade, varying quality of subgrade, but you're actually tying these into adjacent panels and adjacent paving. Everything was
3: properly tied and doweled, but the subgrade was properly repaired and replaced in each place too, which is why the advance recon work with the ground penetrating radar was so essential. You didn't want to pull off a panel and think you could just plug something back in and find you had all kinds of subgrade problems. They were able to identify those locations in a non-destructive manner ahead of time so that when they pulled out a panel, they knew what they had to do. They had the uh, cement treated base or... Um, granular materials on-site, ready to go every night. So they pulled a panel out, they'd do the base repairs and plop the new panel in place and drive on it the next morning. Yeah.
4: So, so arguably they solved the problem with the varying subgrade as well, because yes. that's all got improved as well. Yes, absolutely. Mark, what does the future look like for paving slabs? I'm seeing a lot of exciting things coming through uh, regarding smart materials, uh, embedded sensors, uh, self or charging pavement uh, that charges your car as you drive over it. Um,
3: what are some new technologies that are emerging uh, for precast paving? Well, you named you named probably uh, the the biggest headline ones right there. The uh, the use for charging vehicles um, as they drive, or probably more commonly as they are parked. Uh, for example, at intersections and bus charging stations and things, we're seeing. Uh, The Europeans are doing a lot. If you go over to uh, Belgium and the Netherlands and and Germany, they have a lot of um, embedded inductive charging loops at at, uh, bus stops and uh, at intersections and things where the vehicle pulls up and there's an embedded system there. And that helps in terms of charging the vehicles. It means that the vehicles can be less expensive eventually. If we have a network of these things, you don't need to have as big a battery in your car, right? that helps to bring the cost of those cars down. Uh, if you're constantly recharging kind of as you're driving and as you're using it so that's one of the one of the things uh, there's been some work done in the Netherlands and I think a little bit here with a couple of test installations in the US uh, with solar panels embedded in in precast pavements now, I know the Netherlands work was done with um, bike paths but it's kind of a precursor towards using that for for highways and of course there's you know the the you got to make sure the pavement's still functional. You have to have good surface friction. And I think that becomes kind of an issue with some of those. But there, there's certainly a lot of very exciting things happening. If you go out to the University of Iowa, not, excuse me, Iowa State University, uh, Dr. Halil Chelan is doing some work with uh, heated precast pavements. They've got uh, uh, conductive, conductive concrete being used for casting the panels. And uh, these are hooked up as they're in placed, and they can melt the snow off the pavement. So you don't need to have as much uh, worrying about snow plows and stuff. They're using it at airfields right now, but I think that the plan is eventually it might be something you would see for uh, parking lots and, and highway applications possibly. way in motion systems, um, vehicle guidance systems, as we're getting more and more into uh, self-navigating vehicles, uh, precast pavements. Precast pavements offer a special advantage over I mean, you can put this stuff in any cast-in-place pavement, too, right? But if you have a system failure or a sensor failure, precast pavements can be fabricated to be plug-and-play. You take the offending panel out, and you put in a new panel. It's got the same sensor in it, and you're ready to go again. So rapid repair of these advanced systems.
4: Yeah, or even upgrades, because, yes, as as fast as technology is changing, in two or three years, they might want to replace
3: the panel just because the uh, equipment needs an upgrade. Yeah, so there's lots of exciting stuff. There's a lot of research going on, a lot of very smart people looking at doing things with precast because, like I said, that plug-and-play aspect makes it particularly attractive, I think. Well, Mark, this is all very exciting. Thanks for uh, sharing your time today. Yeah, you're very welcome.
4: Thanks for having me on. Any closing thoughts on precast concrete paving slabs that you'd like the listeners to
3: know? I think it's very important when you consider costs to compare apples and apples. And I will guarantee you that if you... um, Well, first of all, costs are going to vary depending upon uh, the size of the project and the complexity of the project, just like with anything else, right? You have economies of scale. The bigger the project you have and the more panels you're placing, the closer those panels are to each other, um, the the cheaper the unit cost is going to be per square foot or per square yard of pavement. Precast typically costs significantly more than cast in place. And this goes back to what Peter Smith used to always say, if you can build it with cast in place, you probably will. It's a little more expensive because it's worth it because you can get that durability and that speed of construction in a very reliable fashion with precast. It's more expensive than cast-in-place, but if you look at other rapid repair technologies, and you know the rapid set concretes and so forth are out there as well, if you can get the same quality, you're going to have probably a relatively similar cost for cast-in-place as you do with uh, with some of the rapid set technologies as well. That's why i say you got to compare apples and apples and people talk about precast being so expensive relative to cast in place but if you need that time that rapid construction in a short window and you have to go to something that's a rapid polymer concrete uh, proprietary technology that's going to be comparably expensive so um, i would encourage people to look at that so the, the cost issue i think sometimes gets overblown a little bit because if you need to go there that's what it's going to cost you no matter what you use i guess the other final Thoughts would be, I I think that as we've kind of gone over here in this uh, podcast today, Hugh, is that um, I think there is a lot of potential with precast. There's a little bit of a fear factor with people. It's it's tough getting them over that first hump, but if you talk to the users of it, the folks that are using it successfully, you know, talk to the people in California, in New Jersey, in New York, in Ontario. There's a lot of folks using it. They can help guide you through things, and it is an excellent tool to have in the toolbox. And another tool for that toolbox for using it is that NPCA guide. I'm going to shamelessly plug it one more time because I think it's a really good document. There's a lot of really, really useful information in there. And the guide is free, right? It's a free download off the NPCA website. So I would encourage listeners to go to that.
4: I'm glad you brought up the point about precast because I think when a lot of people think of precast, they think of precast structures, they think of utilities. I think it's the mindset uh, of getting Getting people used to the idea of precast as for paving as well, because like you said, um, the benefits that precast brings to paving is is are the same benefits that precast brings to just about any other project, which is the the speed of construction. Number one, number two, the quality control. You have in plant quality control because the business model for precast is to to turn over form work. The quality of the product that you end up with is a lot greater than you end up with with a cast in place because just out of necessity of having to cure that concrete and to make it durable enough to withstand handling and shipping.
3: Yeah, the potential for higher quality is certainly there, along with the other benefits we talked about with extended construction season and reduced testing in the field and uh, you know, kind of known quantities up front. You don't have as many surprises with precast as you may have with uh, cast in place. So
4: once you get a look at the whole
3: picture, precast begins to look a whole lot better at that point, I would say. Yes, and I think that that is uh, illustrated. One of the graphs we've got in that NPCA guide is it shows kind of the increase in the rate of precast paving over the years. It's been a pretty steep climb in the last 10 years. Uh, a lot of folks finding, as you would expect, You know, traffic volumes aren't going down uh, on a permanent basis anyway. Significantly, we're seeing uh, higher rates of use of precast systems. I think that's the proof right there in in and of itself. If if it was just a flash in the pan thing, people would have tried it and they'd walk away. But we don't see that. We see that the the market continues to grow.
4: Thank you so much for joining us on our podcast today. And we appreciate you sharing your time and
3: expertise on the subject. Hey, you're very welcome, Hugh. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being part of the team here.
0: That's our show. We hope you enjoyed it and can take some ideas from it back to your place of work. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating to help us reach more people both inside and outside of our industry. See you next time on Breaking the Mold.